Good morning. Welcome to Northfield Christian Fellowship. What's so funny? My name is Micah. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of uh, chapter 2. We're going to pick up our study of 1 John in the last part of verse two, uh, chapter 2 and into the first part of chapter 3 today. 1 John chapter 2. Last week, Brian talked about the difference between what is true and what is counterfeit. And so much of what our world has to offer is counterfeit. It's not true. So I'm going to run with that topic some more today. Think about all the the advertisements that we see all over the place, on TV, on the internet, billboards, magazines, wherever we see advertisements, they're not true. I don't care what it is they're selling you, it's not true. That shampoo brand will not be. That antifungal cream will not change your life. That dating app will not bring you the perfect spouse. And that great deal on a used car that you found is not a great deal. I don't care what the advertisement is. It's not true. You guys remember Ovaltine? (laughs) Ovaltine used to claim to have nutritional value. It turns out the nutritional value is not in the Ovaltine. It's in the milk that you add the Ovaltine to. (laughs) Remember the toning tennis shoe craze? This was about 10 years ago, and all the, the, the shoemakers had them. Reebok called theirs Easy Tone. Apparently, Easy Tone will shape up your butt 28% better than the average walking shoes. Not true. <laughs> camel cigarettes. More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarettes. Wow. Sounds like a prescription for health. Not true. Smart Balance Butter helps block cholesterol. It turns out they are cholesterol, which really is a bummer because I could eat these things like candy bars. (laughs) Frosted Mini Wheats, clinically shown to improve kids' attendance by nearly 20%. Some of you guys should have eaten Mini Wheats before you showed up to this sermon. (laughs) Talk about true. I thought about all I'd read and said to myself, either quit or smoke true. Because smoking is bad unless you're smoking true. Not true. (laughs) I jumped ahead of myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's not just the advertisements, it's the people. People claim things that are not true all the time. It turns out Elizabeth Warren is not an Indian. It's not true. It's also not true that Bernie Madoff, Esther, not true. It's not true that Elon Musk used to be a space alien, not true. It's also not true that everyone who claims to be a Christian is a true Christian. It's not always true. And in this book of 1 John, we, that, the, this book that we're going through these last several weeks and will be for the next several weeks, we've been seeing that John is showing us the identifying marks of a true Christian. And the reason that John is doing this is to help us, those of us who profess to follow Jesus Christ, to help us know whether or not we are true Christians. He says that in the last chapter of this book, in chapter 13. John wrote, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
So John continues this theme in our passage today. Let's read the passage starting in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And we're going to read to chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John begins this passage in verse 28 calling us little children. Not because he's writing to three and four year olds, he's writing to the entire church. He uses this term twice in our passage today. He uses it three other times in this letter. Little children. It's a tender-hearted term that John is using, deliberately placed in the middle of some hard words. He calls us little children because John really loves God's people. You see the gospel and you see it in his letters. John is all about truth and love. He knows that you and I cannot truly love God. We cannot truly love each other the way that he calls us to in this book unless we first grasp the love that God has for us. That's why in this letter, John continually brings us back to Jesus because this letter is not about you. The book of 1 John is not about you. It's written to you, but it's not about you. It's about Jesus. This letter focuses largely on your beliefs and your, how you and I are to live as true Christians because it's written to you, but it's about Jesus. So all of John's examples in this book of how true Christians live, how true Christians obey God, how true Christians love God, how true Christians love their brother, how true Christians adhere to correct doctrine, how true Christians do not make a practice of sinning, how true Christians purify themselves, how true Christians practice righteousness, all of these things that we've seen throughout this book in these past couple of weeks and will continue to see in the coming weeks, None of these are the foundation of John's letter. They're the pillars of Christianity that rest upon the foundation. The foundation is Jesus. 
This letter is about Jesus. And because it's about Jesus, John tells us in verse 28, abide in him. Abide in Jesus because Jesus is the foundation. That's why sandwiched in between all of John's examples of true Christians, John constantly circles us back to Jesus. Back to Jesus. We saw it in the very opening of this letter in verse 1 of chapter 1. He said that which was from the beginning. He introduced us in his letter talking about Jesus. In the second chapter in verse 2, John came right back to Jesus saying, He is the propitiation for our sins. If this book were about you being good, you wouldn't need a propitiation for your sins. But it's not about you. It's about the one who is good. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, the perfect sacrifice that turns away God's wrath against your sin. We saw it again in last week's passage when Brian reminded us that our calling is not to attain our salvation by good works. Our calling is to remain in the one who has saved us. Continually brings us back to Jesus in this letter. And we see it in our passage today. In chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. We'll see this again next week in verse 16. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We'll see it the week after that in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. We'll see it the Sunday after that in chapter 5, verse 12. Whoever has the son, life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. John didn't say whoever is a good person has life. He said whoever has the Son has life. Because true Christianity is about Jesus, not you. I stress this because if we simply focus on John's examples in this letter of how a true Christian lives and we miss the fact that this letter is about Jesus, then we're preaching nothing more than legalism. Focused on ourselves, and that's not what 1 John is about. It's about Jesus. Abide in. Because the only way we can even attempt to live the way that God calls us to live, the only way we can even attempt the, to, to live the way that John tells us how to live in this letter is to abide in him. Jesus himself told his disciples, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. John uses this word abide 19 times in this letter. It's only a four-page letter full of commands for God's children. But John doesn't merely give us these commands. He doesn't say, stop sinning, love God, love your brother, purify yourself, don't sin, practice righteousness, and good luck. He says, abide in him over and over again. Because you will never live as a true Christian unless you abide in him. 
You can't even be a true Christian unless you abide in him. It's the essence of true Christianity. Jesus is good. You are not good. You need Jesus. Abide in him. Remain in him. Hope in him. Spend time with him. Believe in him. Cling to him. And when you see that you've let go of him, run to him. That's what it means to abide in him. That's what it means to be a true Christian. And we see here in this passage a couple of of reasons why we should abide in him in these first couple of verses. The first reason is for our own confidence that we are true Christians. In verse 28, And now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. In other words, When I'm not abiding in him, I don't have the confidence that I'm a true Christian. I forget that I'm loved by him. I forget that I'm saved by him. I'm like a disobedient dog. A dog that obeys his master enjoys the confidence that his master loves him. But as soon as that dog disobeys, it no longer wags its tail in confidence when his master comes. Instead, its tail is hidden between its legs. That's how we are when we're not abiding in him. We shrink from shame at the thought of him. And John reminds us he's coming. And when he comes, one of the advantages of abiding in him is that we'll run to him in confidence instead of shrinking from him in shame. The second reason to abide in him is because he is righteous. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, it's good to be around a righteous person. I'll give you an example. Teenagers, if you're at a big party in the police barge in, where would you rather be sitting? Next to the guy doing drugs or next to the gal baking cookies? You want to be next to the one who's baking not the one who's baked. Am I right? It's good to be with a righteous person. Abide in him because you know that he is righteous. Verse 29 continues, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, being with a righteous person produces righteousness in us. A true Christian practices righteousness not because we're so good, but because he's so good. When we've been born of him, we abide in him. And when we abide in him, he rubs off on us. True Christians abide in him. True Christians are also loved by the Father. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. The love of the Father. I can't even articulate it with words. I can't paint a picture clear enough for you and I to fully comprehend God's love. It is not possible to exist. 
God's love can be mischaracterized, but it cannot be exaggerated. It's like trying to exaggerate infinity with a number. A billion? No, bigger. A trillion? No, bigger. A quadrillion? No, bigger. God is love. Every one of God's creatures experiences his love. The book of Psalms tells us that the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. But God's special love is reserved for true Christians. His special love is reserved for Christians. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Do you know what it means to be a child of God? I have three children. They're mine. I love my children. They will never not be my children. I would die for my children. But I also have a problem because two of my children are girls. And so I solve that problem by collecting guns. <laughs> because I would also kill for my children. I adore my children. I love them. I adore my daughters. I cherish my son. And I'm just the mortal man. I'm a flawed father. My love for my children is nothing compared to God's love for his children. True, cho true Christians are loved by an immortal, flawless, heavenly father. To such a degree that he calls us his children. You're his. He loves you. And he would die for you. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. John tells us again in the next verse, in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. The Apostle Paul called us beloved children. Peter encouraged us to be obedient children. John, here in this passage, called us little children. But the best of all these titles is children of God. It goes to follow that if we're children of God, then our home is with God, not here, which makes us strangers to this world. Look at the second half of verse 1. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You ever wonder why the world looks at Christians? Because we are. We're children of God. To the person who's godless, that's strange. That's just as strange as if a space alien with three heads showed up and he couldn't figure out why we thought he was different. Because he is. His father's not of this world. Neither is ours, which makes us different. We're not of this world. We're in it, but it's not our permanent home. True Christians are citizens of heaven. Look at the second half of verse 2. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Paul explained it this way to the Philippian church. He said, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Can you imagine being like Jesus? 
Can you imagine having an eternal, resurrected body that never ages, never gets sick? Can you imagine not only being without sin, but being without the urge to sin? Can you imagine being in the presence of our God who calls us his children? Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Children bear the likeness of their parents. My son Judd looks like me. Poor guy. I look like my dad. So it's only natural that God's children will bear some resemblance to their father in heaven. Since God is pure and since you are God's children, you purify yourself. Paul said it like this to the Galatian churches. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself for me. We purify ourselves because it's the natural result of being God's children. Warren Wearsby said, An unbeliever who sins is a creature sinning against his creator. A Christian who sins is a child sinning against his father. Sin is a lot less gratifying as a believer. It's every bit as tempting, but when we sin, it's a lot less gratifying because we're not just a creature sinning against some creator. We are a child sinning against our Father. Christians are loved by the Father. True Christians are also cleansed by the Son. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Our sin is dirty. It doesn't just stain us on the outside. It stains us to our core. It's lawless because sin by its very definition is the breaking of God's law. And because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all of us need to be cleansed. Five, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. See, Jesus didn't just come to gloss over our sins. He didn't come to help us in our sins. He didn't come to say, your sins, they're not that big of a deal. He came to take away sins. He came because your sins are such a big deal that Only his shed blood can cleanse you. True Christians know that they are tarnished, dirty with sin. And so we abide in the only one who can cleanse us. That's why Jesus came. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Look at the second half of verse 5. And in him there is no sin. No sin. You and I marinated in sin. Jesus Christ, no sin. None. Do you realize that Jesus had to have no sin in order to take away our sin? He had to. If Jesus Christ had given in to his temptations, if he would have failed like you and I fail, 
then his death would have been for his own sins. But because in him there is no sin, he was qualified, he was worthy to die as our substitute for our sins. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. In taking away our sins, Jesus freed us from the power of sin. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. We don't keep on sinning because we're no longer overpowered by our sin. That doesn't mean we're now sinless. That won't happen. It won't happen until he appears again and gives us new resurrected bodies. John himself, in this letter, wrote back in chapter 1, he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So what it means here in verse 6 is that we now have the ability, through abiding in him, to resist sin. It means we become more aware of sin in our lives, and we don't like it anymore. We don't pursue it as a way of life anymore. Before I surrendered my life to Jesus, I had to sin. I had to. I seriously didn't live without some of my sins. It's what kept me from becoming a true Christian. I had to be at parties. I had to drink too much because that's what defined me. When Christ brought me to him, he defined me. I no longer wanted to keep on sinning. It doesn't mean I became sinless as a Christian. I still wrestle with sin every single day. But it means I love him more than my sin because I've seen that he loves me more than his life. He freed us from the power of sin. He exposed the deceit of sin. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Here's a common deceit among false Christians. Sin isn't really lawlessness. It's not that big of a deal. And John says, let no one deceive you. He continues in verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. True Christians abide in him. True Christians are loved by the Father. True Christians are cleansed by the Son. And finally, true Christians are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Do true Christians sin? Yeah. If we say no, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Yeah. We still wrestle with sin every day, but true Christians gave practice of sinning. So what does that mean, to make a practice of sinning? A driver doesn't make a practice of running out of gas. He might run out of gas, but he doesn't set out to do it. 
An athlete doesn't make a practice of laziness. He may wrestle with laziness every single day, but it's not in his game plan to be lazy. A ballet dancer does not make a practice of landing on her heels. She may not always land on her toes, but that's her goal. That's what she sets out for. Just as a true Christian doesn't make up of sinning, we do still sin, but we don't set out to live in sin because the heart of a true Christian is so transformed by the Spirit that it's impossible to remain in the state of willful, persistent sin. For God's seed abides in Him. God's seed is the Holy Spirit abiding in us convicting us, encouraging us, humbling us, exhorting us, breaking us, strengthening us, turning us back to Jesus when we are not abiding in him. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church saying, you are the promised Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Last part of verse 9 and end of uh, verse 10. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. True Christians are born of God. Sealed by the Spirit. Before I was a Christian, I could not stop sinning. It was me. It was my essence. I was a child of the devil. And so were you. When I became a Christian, I could not keep on sinning because I was no longer born simply of flesh and blood. I was born of God, as this passage says. God's seed abides in me. How about you? Does God's seed abide in you? Are you a true Christian? Remember, John wrote this book to you. He wrote it to show what a true Christian is, how a true Christian lives, what true Christians believe. But although this letter is written to you, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. Only Jesus is without sin. Only Jesus loves his brother perfectly. Only Jesus can cleanse you and me. And only Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And the only shred of righteousness that you and I can ever hope to display in our lives comes from him, not us. Are you a true Christian? Who do you run to? Yourself? Your sin? Jesus. And now, little children, abide in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sent your son while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Thank you that this wonderful, encouraging, exhorting, challenging letter is not about me and not about us. It's about Jesus. Thank you for not merely his example, but his propitiation 
that he satisfied your wrath, that you no longer look at us as children of the devil. You children of God, your children. What a privilege. Father, help us. We need help. I need help every moment of every day to abide in you because I so easily drift. Help us to abide that we may display the lives of a true Christian in our daily practices. Father, I pray for those in here who are not true Christians. I ask that you would bring them to Jesus, the one who this book is about. I pray this in your son's name.